Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. In this episode, we're going to look at the Hamilton Public School Board's battle with the province over mask mandates. How high will inflation rise in Canada? New funding is going to allow Honda Canada to build new hybrid vehicles at its plant in Ontario. An interesting and puzzling story about an empty piece of land in Hamilton. We will analyze next week's NATO summit and the next steps in the war in Ukraine. And the Blue Jays have added more muscle to their lineup. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Let me be very clear to the school boards. They aren't medical experts. Uh, The chief medical officer is the expert. Uh, He is... uh, I mean, he's done his due diligence. He's consulted with other uh, medical officers. He doesn't make these decisions lately. Good morning, Hamilton. This is 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Thanks for hopping on board and making us a part of your morning each and every morning here on 900 CHML. That was Premier Doug Ford a little while ago um, when he was introducing the mask mandate and then responding to some school boards saying, I don't know, maybe we should continue our mask mandate. Some school boards are going down that route, as we know, come Monday, masks will not have to be worn in most indoor public settings. If you're going to be visiting a long-term care facility, yes, you got to wear a mask. If you're going to be on public transit, yes, you still have to wear a mask. But if you're in a grocery store or the shopping mall, the corner store, you do not have to wear a mask any longer come Monday. The Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board deciding to keep mask rules in its schools even though the province has said, hey, get in line. Don Danko is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Rick. Uh, Thanks for joining us once again on this important topic. We know that trustees originally voted to continue the mask mandate in local public schools until April 15th. That has been changed to April 1st. Let's start there. Why that change? Uh, the primary reason for that change was reviewing some of the, challenge, the challenges that we might have operationalizing the motion to, to require masks to April 15th. Um, but ultimately, April 1st was a, a more strategic date in terms of providing a transition that allows us to make sure students who may need to move to remote because they have increased personal risk factors and they made the decision to be in person with all of these restrictions, cohorting, distancing, masking in place, it gives us that two-week period to work with those students and families and make sure that we have a transition plan and can make sure they have continuity of learning. And and so from an operational perspective, we think that's really critical. Otherwise, uh, if we followed the provincial direction uh, as of March 21st, there are students that would not have access to school on that day and we wouldn't have a plan for them. So that's the primary reason. It also aligns with the the, the advice of the Children's Health Coalition, which represents uh, medical professionals and organizations across Ontario that recommended that two-week period uh, would be really helpful beyond March break to help facilitate and, and reduce the risk related to um, likely increased absences if there's a spike in cases as we've seen following holidays where there's a lot of increased socialization in the past. So for clarity's sake, I know a lot of parents are listening to this right now thinking, all right, is is Monday going to be maskless or not as of Monday? And until April 1st, students will have to wear a mask in school. Yes, so the the motion is that all students and staff uh, will be required to wear masks until April 1st or unless we've received a different a ministerial directive. I'll note that we, we received provincial direction through a memo and an update that removed the provincial requirement, but that didn't, uh, it was silent on whether or not boards could continue to have their own mandates. 
And in the past, the ministry has been clear that uh, the the guidelines that were set out were a minimum standard, and boards could exceed that. Uh, But again, this is meant to be a transition period. And I I would ask people to remember that when we started wearing masks, uh, and Rick, you'll remember this, it wasn't necessarily to protect yourself. It was to protect others. So there are people that don't seem to understand that the Chief Medical Officer of Health is still encouraging people to wear masks. Nobody's saying, hey, you should just drop masks. They are not required. What's dropped is the mask mandate at the provincial level. And so that's, that's an important piece of clarification. And the other is that this is about being compassionate and considerate for those around you. And so we are asking our school communities, our students, our staff to be respectful, to be kind, to be compassionate for those for whom this is not going to feel like a safe environment and just help us get through this two-week transition by continuing to wear masks. Don Danko is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Don is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. As of Monday, a mask mandate will continue to be effect at uh, local public schools. Uh, you've asked for support from Hamilton's Chief Medical Officer of Health. We've heard from Public Health, who has said that it respects the board's decision to maintain the mask requirement until April 1st and trust that the board is going to continue to work with the Ministry of Education on this initiative. It sounds like Public Health doesn't want to get involved. Uh, We have sent two letters to Hamilton Public Health. I believe one is going out this morning with the update, um, respecting that we did have a change this week in our motion. Um, But it is to request that they they support um, the the extension of the mask requirements uh, from a public health perspective, that they consider whether a Section 22 order might be appropriate um, beyond March 21st. And the length of time would depend on things in Hamilton, including vaccination rates, case counts, and so on, and and that would be based on their medical expertise. Um, That's something that they have the authority to do in consultation with the province. Um, But we do appreciate that they've they've directed us to work with the Ministry of Education, which we have continued to do. Um, Our director and, and I have provided updates to the Ministry of Education, and we've been encouraged to have the director work with principals to operationalize our, our new motion. And so I, I believe that uh, we can do this in, in a very purposeful way that, that supports students and staff get through the significant changes that we're seeing. Since uh, the Premier's announcement and the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health's announcement uh, a little while ago, I'm sure you've heard from a boatload of parents. What are they saying and are some contemplating remote learning for their kids? Really, I think everyone knows this is a very polarizing issue. Um, it's, it's something that people are very emotional about. And so we, we have heard from both sides, people that say, my child has suffered long enough, the, the masks are difficult, I want them removed. And then from parents saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. We have someone who's medically vulnerable in our family or my student and my child is immunocompromised and would not be able to go to school without this motion. Um, so it, it certainly is mixed and uh, certainly very strong opinions about it. And, and that, again, that's where I go back to um, noting that it's, it's the parents that we're hearing from, uh, really limited student voice aside from students saying, if I need to make a change, are you going to give me time to do that? Or are you just going to say, masks are removed and I'm not going to feel comfortable going to school? That, that, that's uh, what our student trustees brought forward. Um, really, though, I, I'm just going to go back to the expectation and, and the ask that everyone consider we are all in different places and can we move through this in a kind and considerate way. Ms. Danko, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you so much, Rick. That is Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, as they are committed to continuing their mask mandates up to April the 1st. Uh, we'll continue to follow this story and see what kind of ministerial backlash, if any, uh, will come forward in the next uh, days or a couple of weeks. Uh, sounds like everyone is on the same page, but uh, who knows? With this virus, uh, or just like the virus, anything can change at a moment's notice. When it does, we will keep you up to date. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Real interesting story here in the city of Hamilton. As we know, there's a big need for more housing, uh, more affordable housing to be exact, in this city. And there is a pretty big parcel of land that's for sale in Mount Hope. Sounds like a win-win, doesn't it? Well, it turns out the situation has been anything but. Jeanette McDonald owns this parcel of land in question at the corner of Highway 6 South and Airport Road, and she joins us on Good Morning Hamilton to explain what is going on. Jeanette, good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. I'm glad to have, to be on your show. Yeah, this is, a, as I said, a very interesting but also a very puzzling story. What is happening? My family owned um, the farm on either side of Highway 6, um, the government did decide to run Highway 6 through the middle, um, which left just the nine-plus acres on the northeast corner, uh, which was pretty much useless for farming. Um, there's only a small amount of land which was determined um, by the city of Hamilton to be developable, developable in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been determined as white land, which is in between the urban boundary and <clears throat> the green belt. Okay. So long story Our short, land, you're not you're not allowed to sell it because of a zoning issue. Is that is that accurate? That's correct. It is zoned A two, uh, which is mainly agricultural. So we could put a business there, such as a, maybe a slaughterhouse, um, you know, pig farm, chickens, right. dog kennel, which might be kind of noisy, or we could grow weed there. Um, but even if we wanted to, they would not allow us to change the zoning to build a house on it. So it's it's pretty useless for us. Now, this land now, has been across- in your family for decades, right? Over 100 years. Wow. How long have you been trying to sell it? Um, it's My father tried to sell it years ago before he passed away. Uh, we've had it on the market now for five years. Okay. Jeanette McDonald is our guest. Uh, you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about a about a nine-acre parcel of land in the Mount Hope area that uh, Jeanette would like to sell, but because of uh, a zoning snafu, can't really do so. Uh, from what I understand, it's up for sale just over $4 bucks. Has there been any interest from potential buyers? There's a great deal of interest. Um, that intersection is the busiest one in the area. Uh, I know our realtor has uh, people calling about every other day. Um, uh, as well, we've had six offers, but because the city of Hamilton will not work with uh, the potential buyers, um, all of those offers have fallen through. So how long do you necessarily have to wait for this zoning issue to be corrected? Is it going to be uh, changed in 10 years? Is it going to take 20? Like, how long is it going to take? They tell me it's going to be 2051. Wow, that's a long ways away. Well, it is, but, you know, the city said, well, the urban boundary stops at Upper James, um, and our land on the east side is not included, and they will not move the boundary. Wow. What have negotiations been like with the city? 
Oh, there is none. They won't even discuss it. They just turn the people away that, um, you know, are potential buyers. Uh, we've sent numerous letters um, and nothing. It, it is puzzling because we do have this need for housing, yet, uh, you know, this zoning issue is kind of preventing something that could be a, a win-win, not only for you and your family, but for people who need a place to stay. Oh, absolutely. And and the funny thing is on the other side of the highway, which is closer to the airport, so that's on the west side, um, there was some old policy in place that allowed that to be changed from commercial to residential. So there's all these houses right across the highway from our land, which really shouldn't be there. As well, it used up all the commercial land. So, you know, why wouldn't they let us change ours to commercial? Um, you know, the other part of it is on, on the video that was on um, television last night, you know, Brenda Johnson stated, who's the counselor for Glanbrook, um, spoke that, you know, there was a policy back in the 1990s, um, you know, that allowed that. Well, my question would be, um, you know, when they decided to develop the airport and Mount Hope, why wasn't that those policies changed um, so that there wouldn't be residential built so close to the airport? Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, that would have been a good time to update things for sure. Jeanette, we got to run. We're plumb out of time. I thank you for your time okay. and best of luck going forward with this. I know it's it's probably a big head scratcher for you. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks again to Jeanette McDonald's there. It's really a, a puzzling scenario because we know uh, that the city is committed to building uh, more housing, more affordable housing. Here's this piece of land uh, around uh, Mount, or in Mount Hope, around the uh, Hamilton Airport. That would be, I think, a pretty decent place to build some housing. I mean, the, the land's there. It's nine acres. I'm sure you could build a few homes on nine acres of land. And it would solve a bit of an issue. I mean, the, the bus goes by it, so it's on a transportation corridor and you know it's been sitting around for all these years i know there's zoning in place but can't we just change this with a quick vote at city hall uh mcdonald by the way says she is um going to contact the um municipal affairs and housing ministry here in the province and uh, maybe they can convince or entice uh, or at least discuss a rezoning with uh, the city of hamilton there have been a handful of offers on this property, by the way, and all are near or at least matching the asking price. So uh, interesting, interesting story coming out of um, the Mount Hope area. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. StatsCan says the annual inflation rate climbed to 5.7% in February, and many economists say that they're confident inflation has not yet hit the ceiling. How high can it go? Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. How are you? Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing pretty good. How much of the blame does the war in Ukraine get for rising inflation? It gets uh, some of the blame, uh, a little bit of the blame, but uh, most of the blame, I think, uh, is a result of changes in input prices as a result of sort of the uh, takes and pulls of what's happened with COVID-19. 
So is is this dependent on, you know, what a country produces, what it imports, exports, or does it go beyond that? Well, I think it's beyond that in this case, because um, one of the big uh, issues with uh, with inflation around the world right now, and in the U.S., inflation is even higher. Uh, it came in around, I think it was around uh, 8%, close to 8%, 7 and change uh, for January is uh, global supply chains have been an absolute mess um, since the pandemic hit. And long story short, uh, suppliers, freight forwarders, everyone sort of, you know, shut the machine down or closed the machine a bit. And uh, then we had this massive surge of demand for consumer goods and uh, the worldwide global supply chain couldn't keep up. We had massive, we have still massive freight cost increases. um, And that's one of the big things we've also seen significant increases in raw materials and uh, minerals and different uh, items like that. We've also seen labor increases, particularly in some areas within retail hospitality and uh, a number of other factors too. So when you add all this up, it's sort of a a death by a thousand cuts, unfortunately. Um, Now, having said that, the war is not helping, obviously, right? Uh, With the price of oil and uh, and other issues and other products that Ukraine and Russia uh, export. You've listed off a number of factors. It seems like all the dominoes were lined up and they all have all fallen, you know, kind of one by one. It has really. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. I don't think anyone has in terms of just the number of factors that are in play at once. Everything from labor cost increases to raw material cost increases, freight cost increases. Um, you know, and, and it's just it's just a perfect storm. And now the war in Ukraine is just a perfect storm for consumers, unfortunately. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Bruce Winder, a retail analyst and author of the book Retail Before, During and After COVID-19, helping drive the increase in February where higher gasoline prices. We're definitely seeing that in uh, this part of the world. Um, 7% higher in January. They were 32% higher compared to February of 2021. Uh, are gas prices also going up because of the war, or can we blame this more on the inflationary pressures? Well, there definitely was some inflationary pressure before the war because um, gas prices were elevated, but they shot up again uh, during during the ongoing war in Ukraine because uh, Russia um, supplies, uh, I think it's about 10% or 15% of uh, the world's petroleum, uh, gasoline, and a, far, a little bit more in terms of natural gas. So energy prices have went up. And definitely, I mean, markets don't like uncertainty, right? And war equals uncertainty. So that's why you're seeing high volatility. And right now, you know, uh, folks like the U.S. Are, have banned oil uh, from Russia. Canada's banned oil from Russia. So you're seeing a, a few countries scramble to try to fill in that supply from places like Venezuela and even Iran and different places like that. Consumer prices have been rising across the board, whether it's gasoline or food. Uh, we're seeing uh, the price of homes going up, obviously, rental mm-hmm. rates going up. Can the Bank of Canada do anything other than raise interest rates? You know, it's a tough one because that's one of the main levers that the Bank of Canada has to try to combat inflation is is, uh, interest rate increase. But, you know, a lot of folks are saying there's only so much that'll do, Uh, even by increasing the interest rates. There's only so much that'll alleviate inflation because you're dealing with global input costs. The other thing that the Bank of Canada has to watch is consumer debt in Canada is at an all-time high, um, even before the pandemic now. So if they raise rates too quickly, you're gonna have massive financial pressure from the average Canadian who can't pay their credit card bills or can't pay their mortgage or can't pay other debts. 
Many experts, many economists saying that inflation will continue to rise in the months ahead. Is there anything stopping this rise on the horizon? I really am not aware of anything. I mean, I do think it's going to continue for a little while, uh, really until uh, sort of supply and demand rebalance each other in every way across the entire supply chain. And these usually when this happens, it takes several months, if not years, to sort of restructure things of this magnitude. So I, I would anticipate you're going to see some inflation for at least a few more months. So how is this going to impact the retail landscape? Uh, I, I would assume that many more people are not going to have, obviously, the budget to increase their spending. You know, their household budget is their exactly. household budget. You, you've just mentioned their, you know, consumer debt is at an all-time high in Canada. Are, are we going to see a, a tightening of the pocketbooks in this nation? We really are, um, because wages have went up in some sectors, but generally not nearly as high as inflation has went up. So we've all kind of lost spending power. And you're going to see people start to uh, defer things, you know, maybe put off buying big items, repair items more. I saw something on Canadian Tire, their automotive business was 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 gangbusters. People are going to fix their cars instead of buy new ones. You can't even get new cars because of chips. But, you know, people are going to shop at more discount stores like Dollarama and Dollar Tree. Um, They're going to buy more private label products. They're going to buy more frozen food versus uh, fresh food, things like that. You'll start to see some consumer habits already starting to change. Interesting stuff. Bruce, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Take care. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, and he is also the author of the book Retail Before, During, and After – COVID-19. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. These investments will ensure Honda Canada builds its next generation models like hybrids right here in Ontario to be sold right across North America. This means the cars of the future will be built right here by Ontario workers using Ontario resources. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That, of course, is the voice of Premier Doug Ford alongside Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday as they announced millions of dollars in funding support for domestic hybrid car production at the Honda plant in Alliston, Ontario. Marvin Ryder is a business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Marvin. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Glad to be with you today. Thanks for uh, joining us once again. Uh, More proof, I guess, that Ontario remains the literal automotive engine in this country. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes. Uh, Certainly what we've seen over the last year is almost all of the major car companies, starting with the North American companies, uh, investing in this area to build the next generation of vehicles. They've all said that by 2030, the vehicles are going to be much more electrified. In this case, with a Honda, these are not purely 100% electric vehicles they're going to build. They're going to be hybrids that run on a combination of gas and electricity, but they're going to be built here in Ontario for sale in North America. And that's something that we've been quite worried about over the last year. Uh, President Joe Biden in one of his uh, programs called the Build Back Better program was suggesting that uh, he would give subsidies to people to buy these kinds of electric vehicles, but only if they were made in the United States. And that caused both the Premier Ford and Prime Minister Trudeau to worry, well, would we see the kinds of investments we wanted? And yesterday's announcement, $1.4 billion to retool the Alliston factory. Granted, there's going to be $120 million from both the province and another $120 million from the federal government. But great news that this is going to continue to be done here in Ontario. That secures this industry well into the 2030s. 
It is fantastic news, and and you kind of referenced it uh, in terms of what I thought was the most interesting part of it is that Honda's retooling its manufacturing plant to build uh, 2023, I think the year is CRV and CRV hybrids, as opposed to all electric. Should we read into the the hybrid versus electric um, scenario from Honda? No, I'm going to say no for two reasons. First, uh, they're going to start building these much sooner than 2030. So as you pointed out, they talked about doing this in the year 2023. Uh, at this point, Honda doesn't have all electric vehicles in its lineup. So if it wanted to to build something in 2023, it would have to be the hybrids. But presumably that as they do this rebuild, they'll do it in such a way that as they move to more and more all electric vehicles, they could be assembled in the same factory. I have been lucky enough to visit that Alliston factory, and it is an absolute marvel to watch all of the uh, robots along with the humans sort of working side by side to assemble these cars. It really is high technology, and it's going to be even higher technology in just a couple of years. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Marvin Ryder, business professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Um, Both Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Doug Ford dodged questions yesterday about the possibility of incentives to help Canadians buy these hybrid or even electric vehicles. Are they going to be coming down the pipe? And and if not, um, is it going to entice people to dive into one of these vehicles? Right. So a couple of things on this. Uh, uh, clearly, one party or the other doesn't want to get ahead of the other person. What I mean by that is uh, Ontario and the federal government want to be in lockstep. I don't think it would be appropriate for Doug Ford to announce that he's going to give subsidies without Justin Trudeau having his chance to do something and vice versa on all of this. Uh, We do know that there's lots of people today looking at electric vehicles without incentives, uh, even though some electric vehicles like a Tesla are a little more expensive than average. uh, People are still looking at the high, high gas prices and saying, look, I can fill up my tank with electrons for maybe a quarter of what I'm doing with gasoline. For some people, that's enough of an incentive right there. So I think they're trying to figure out what the right approach is. You'll remember that when Doug Ford was elected roughly four years ago, he canceled many incentives on the pricey at that time electric vehicles because he didn't want to be seen as supporting a rich person's car. But as we move forward, the price of these vehicles is going to come down as they become more and more common and are produced in larger and larger quantities. So I think they're all trying to figure out what is the right level, what is the right approach to encourage people towards a greener uh, lifestyle. Uh, so I won't I won't be shocked to see incentives, but they're just not here yet. I think the number is about five percent of new vehicles purchased in Canada are electric vehicles. When do you expect that number to hit at least double digits? So at least ten percent. So you know I think that could happen quite on its own within the next two years. Um, it, it's one of those funny things. Uh, I've lived through another wave of technology when record albums were replaced by CDs. And that process took two and a half years as the CDs became more and more popular and vinyl almost disappeared. It's come back to some extent now, but it's it's still not what it once was. And I think we need the same thing with cars. Those early adopters, those first adopters of electric vehicles are now almost uh, emissaries, if you will, for it. (laughs) Uh, I have a friend who has one. He's an evangelist for this. He goes out and preaches about how wonderful it is. And I think as they become more common, they'll catch on even faster. So to get to 10% of car sales, give it two years. I think by 2024, uh, we'll see a tremendous growth in that area. Also because the automobile companies themselves are going to be 
reducing the number of models of gas vehicles, just the availability of them are going to go down. And this will all flip flop in eight years. We do know that more and more charging stations are going to be uh, popping up, not only across Ontario, but across the country. The biggest downfall that I've been hearing is the repair cost uh, or the replacement cost, maybe uh, a better term for replacing yep. these batteries. Um, so much so there was a guy, I think in Finland or Norway, who blew up his old Tesla because he didn't yep. want to pay the $28,000 price tag to repair it. Are are replacing these batteries going to get more affordable or, or, or just affordable? Well, a, a couple of things on this. So first to charging stations, uh, you're right. We need more charging stations, just like we have all these gas stations out there. But I think what you're going to see happen is many people, not all, but many people are going to establish them in their own home. It isn't that hard to do. And then you can charge overnight when the electricity prices are the lowest. Even today, when you visit a charging station, you sort of pay a premium for electricity. If you did it at home, you would, you could do this at the lowest marginal rate. So I think Many homeowners are going to do that. In terms of the batteries, most people don't know this, but a Tesla, all of the batteries that run the Tesla make up the floor of the automobile. And this is one of the reasons why it gets so expensive. You basically have to de-assemble your vehicle to get to where the batteries are and then put the new batteries in. Now, a couple of things are going to happen. The early Teslas, the battery life wasn't good, meaning you had to replace them in about eight years. And many people will keep an automobile more than eight years. That would mean the rebuild so uh, I think what you're going to find, apparently the new Teslas, they're trying to get 20 years out of the batteries. So you may not have to face a rebuild while you're an owner of them. But also, again, as the number of them go up and we have more availability of, of uh, the parts and repairs, et cetera, we should see the price come down. So, again, there is a price to being an early adopter. Those early adopters of Tesla saw a more expensive uh, ownership uh, issue for them. But I think that, too, is going to come down as it becomes more popular. Marvin, always great to chat with you. Thanks for joining us once again. Enjoy your day. Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today, ministers agreed that we must continue to provide significant support to Ukraine, including with uh, military supplies, financial help, and humanitarian aid. That is NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg as NATO leaders, including Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, will come together for a summit next week to discuss the war in Ukraine. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Let's dive into this topic with Dr. Walter Dorn, Professor of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College and Chair in the Department of Security and International Affairs at Canadian Forces College. Dr. Dorn, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Just fine. Glad to be with you. March 24th, NATO leaders will hold a summit. What do you expect to come out of that meeting? Well, one month after the Russian attack, invasion of Ukraine, I expect NATO to come up with a very strong statement of support for Ukraine, uh, but holding a very fine line so that NATO does not become at war with Russia, but at the same time does everything it can to support Ukraine in its war with Russia. It sounds like NATO nations are going to do anything and everything but institute a no-fly zone. I think they will, uh, yes, I think they will avoid a no-fly zone because that would be directly engaging with Russia. A no-fly zone would mean that the allied nations in, in NATO would fly in Russian, um, would fly against Russia and have to shoot down Russian planes 
as well as any air defense systems that Russia might have on the ground. And so they will avoid that direct con- combat with Russia. But at the same time, they'll do um, lots of weapons, including possibly some aircraft to, to, Russia, to Ukraine so they could uh, fight with Russia. Hasn't stopped Ukraine's president from making those requests from uh, NATO nations, including in his virtual address to the House of Commons on Tuesday to the U.S. Congress yesterday. Aside from the no-fly zone issue, are those speeches going to have any impact on what happens at the summit? Well, I think that uh, President Zelensky has made a huge impact. Um, His direct um, appeals to the member states in in NATO and to the different bodies is is grabbing the world. He's become a kind of hero for resistance. And his appeal to the nations of the world um, mean that there's many nations who want to do more to help. And behind it is the arsenal of democracy embodied by the Western European countries and and the United States and Canada. And that, um, that arsenal can be of great power to him. And I think in the end, it means that, um, that Russia is, is doomed in Ukraine. It can't win this war. And most it can do is, is get a stalemate and try and find a favorable position on the bargaining table. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Walter Dorn, Professor of Defense Studies at Royal Military College and Chair in the Department of Security and International Affairs at Canadian Forces College. We're talking about the upcoming NATO summits that is going to happen next week in Brussels, Belgium, uh, as uh, NATO leaders focus on the war in Ukraine. Um, you mentioned possibly a diplomatic end or at least hopefully that is the end, to this conflict. How does that work? How does that play out? What does that look like? Well, there will be very difficult negotiations for weeks, months, hopefully not years. And the parties will make very strong demands of each other. And there'll be a lot of back and forth. And depending on the situation on the ground, um, in the battlefield, will have a huge impact on the negotiations and if Russia is in a weak position, it will have to give up more. And um, in the end, if we get to the status quo pro pre-bellum, ante-bellum, then that would mean that the uh, that we come to a situation similar to we were in the beginning of February of this year, where Russia makes um, has so- solid control over the Donbass region of Ukraine. And we'll see whether Ukraine is willing to give up part of its territory. Uh, and allow Russia to, to maintain that control. Uh, or if it gets worse for Ukraine, it means actually giving, acknowledging that that territory is now Russian, which I think the, the world would resist. But um, depending on the Russian situation on the ground, it could be that there is some, something that Ukraine has to give up to, um, to uh, let Russia say that it will leave uh, Ukraine and uh, leave Ukraine alone. And it may also be that that Ukraine has to agree that it will be neutral, that it won't apply for um, NATO membership. But of course, that could change. You know, Russia, Russia or the Ukraine could change its its minds in coming years, and then uh, the positions change, and then eventually NATO could join, could could allow that Ukraine join with um, NATO. We have about a minute here. Um, Once this conflict ends and there is, let's just say, a diplomatic uh, agreement between the two countries, will we see any sort of peacekeeping mission that NATO is involved or NATO allies are involved in in Ukraine? Can that happen? Yeah, it's quite possible. It could be that um, 
that Ukraine and Russia both agree that they want to have their borders be more made more secure through a peacekeeping force, or they might want that any ceasefire that they have, including during the war, um, if there's a humanitarian ceasefire or humanitarian corridors, they might have observers coming to to make sure that neither side violates that agreement. So I, I see the possibility of peacekeeping force or a peacekeeping mission of some sort, but they would probably not be from NATO, NATO nations. There have to be countries that are more, um, would be considered more impartial for, on the Russian side. They would be uh, India or some uh, nations that, that don't have a stake in this. But it, definitely I see that the UN could play a role or the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, which is based in Vienna, uh, that, that that organization would have a role. So I, I do see the good role, a good place for peacekeepers in the future of Ukraine. Interesting stuff. Dr. Dorn, thank you very much for the time today. Glad to be with you and good morning to you and everyone. That is uh, Dr. Walter Dorn, Professor of Defense Studies at Royal Military College and Chair in the Department of Security and International Affairs at Canadian Forces College. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. After you know falling short of their uh, goals last year and getting in the playoffs, making some damage, going to the World Series, which hasn't been done in a long, 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 long time. Blue Jays, again, retooling, reloading uh, for what could be, knock on wood, uh, a, uh, a very productive season, especially at the plate. Not only have they improved uh, their arms on the mounds, they have bulked up an already potent lineup with the latest acquisition. Yesterday, agreeing to a deal with the Oakland Athletics, sending four prospects to the A's for third baseman Matt Chapman. And that is a big upgrade at third for the Bluebirds. Here's some reaction from Jays utility man Santiago Espinal. When that trade happened, everybody was happy, you know, because he's going to be able to help us, you know, especially us, the young guys. He's going to be able to help us and I'm and he's already been there. He's already got a gold glove. And for us to have him and learn from him, I think is a, is a blessing, yeah. So what impact is this going to have on the team? Let's ask Chris Henderson. He's the co-editor and contributor of Jay's Journal on Fansided.com. Chris, good morning. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing today? Not sir? too bad. Matt Chapman is a Blue Jay. What do you think? You know what? I think it's a great fit. There was a lot of a lot of different rumors around Blue Jays over the last, well, several months and uh, especially this past week. And, and um, you know, for all the options that were out there, Chapman's just a great fit. The guy brings, um, you know, some of the best defense in all of baseball and uh, a bat that really has the chance to bounce back and, and be an MVP type of player again. Yeah, the other two sluggers who were being linked to the Jays, one Freddie Freeman, who's a phenomenal player, but more or less a first baseman. I guess he could have DH'd with the team as well. And the other one, Kyle Schwarber, who can play a couple of different positions. But I, I think the Jays are getting the better of the three right now in terms of future potential. And, you know, the contract is pretty favorable as well. Yeah, that's right. He's going to be making about $9.5 million this year, and then he's got one more year of arbitration left. So, um, salary-wise, it fits really well. In fact, it allows them to do another, make another move if they if they choose to go in that direction, or if they want to do something like that uh, at the trade deadline. And uh, you know, Ian, you're right. Those other two guys um, could have been great fits as well, more with the bat. But um, having that third baseman or that extra infielder, you know, with the loss of Marcus uh, Marcus Simeon uh, to the Rangers, um, now they can shift. Um, you know, Kevin Biggio back over to second base where he where he's more comfortable and 
Chapman's really going to bring a lot, lot of upside to the Blue Jays. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Chris Henderson, co-editor and contributor of Jays Journal on Fansided.com. We're talking about the Jays' acquisition of slugger Matt Chapman. Right now, their opening day lineup, or at least the uh, batting order, looks like this. George Springer at leadoff, Bo Bichette, Vladdy Guerrero, Teoscar Hernandez, probably Lourdes Gurriel, followed by Chapman, and then Randall Grichik, either Danny Jansen or Alejandro Kirk, depending on the, the lefty-righty matchup on the mound, and then Kevin Biggio. That is a pretty stellar lineup. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And you know, and it's uh, as we're looking at some of the way the other teams are, are loading up around the game, it's there's going to be some real have and have not kind of thing when it comes to the baseball lineups this year. And, and fortunately, the Blue Jays are in a position where they have this time around. So, what do they do now? What what's left to do? Do you think? That's a great question. You know, I think the biggest uh, the biggest hole that maybe remains on the roster is somebody that can DH on a regular basis. Uh, Ideally, they'll find a left-handed bat. That was a big reason why they were interested in Freddie Freeman and Kyle Schwarber. Was the majority of their lineup is right-handed, um, and not that that's a bad thing uh, by any means, but it's nice to have some balance. So if they could find a player, you know, maybe somebody like a Corey Dickerson who was there down the stretch last year again uh, that could come in, maybe be an extra outfielder, be a DH bat um, most of the time. I think that would be a really good fit. And you know, and on top of that, you can never have too many arms, especially in the bullpen. So. I'm sure Ross Atkins will be searching for a few more assets there, too. Yeah, I'm sure the shopping list has not uh, all been crossed off as of yet. Chris, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. That is Chris Henderson, co-editor and contributor of Jays Journal on fansided.com. A Blue Jays rotation looking pretty good as well with Kevin Gosman, Jose Barrios, Hyunjin Ryu, Alec Manoa, um, newly acquired uh, Kikuchi from uh, the Seattle Mariners. Uh, this is a team. You say Kikuchi. This is a team that could... Do a lot of damage, both at the plate and on the mound. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.